This is Dominic Keating, Malcolm Reed, Lieutenant to you at the Motor City Comic Con. Just wanted to say uh, keep on listening to Tricks in Sci-Fi. Well, welcome everyone, and thanks to Dominic Keating for that cool intro uh, from back in the springtime at um, the Motor City Comic Con. This is Trex in Sci-Fi. I'm Rico, your host. Today will be podcast, just an audio podcast. Oh my goodness, this is so different. <laughs> this is going to be podcast 151 for December the 2nd, 2007. Back in our normal format this week. Uh, the show this week is primarily going to be about uh, the uh, 1960s television show Lost in Space, another favorite of mine, and I think from, uh, from what I've been hearing from people on the forums and emails, uh, also a favorite of other uh, fans out there. So been meaning to uh, get to that show to look at, and this week we're going to do it. Going to have some uh, audio clips from various listeners We've got uh, some movie news to pass on about the Star Trek movie. You know, all the usual fun. So uh, to start with, I thought I would play the uh, early uh, first season theme song to Lost in Space uh, as our opening intro to get us all in the mood for that. So here we go with that, and I'll be right back. Again, welcome to this week's edition of Treks in Sci-Fi, folks. This is Rico back in the seat, uh, in my normal seat uh, for doing these shows, uh, my audio uh, chair here, or computer desk chair, or whatever you want to call it, uh, just coming to you live, sort of live, I guess, uh, on this uh, Sunday morning here, at least uh, where I'm at and recording this on a fairly cold, wintry kind of morning. Uh, woke up to a little snow on the ground here in Michigan, and uh just back to uh, a normal audio podcast. Now, uh, I uh, wanted to start out by saying uh, I, I really, um, I really had a great time doing Show 150, the video show, and and again, I really appreciate everyone who contributed to the show, and it has really been a hit. I, I've gotten a lot of emails, uh, comments on the forum, uh, just lots of uh, good wishes towards uh, that show, and what people thought about uh, all my antics and uh, <laughs> oh, dancing. And, and I can actually dance a little bit better than that. Well, not really that much better. But anyway, it's really, uh, it seems to have uh, really been a hit. And I'm, I'm pretty proud of uh, everything that uh, went into that show. And uh, I'd like to do another one sometime. Uh, it's it, it does take a lot of work, but I learned a lot. So I think the next one would go a little bit quicker and a little bit smoother. Uh, little little tricks, uh, and, and I, I just need a better camera. That The camera I used mainly for that show I had to borrow. I don't have a, uh, a, a believe it or not, a, a Rico with all the gadgets. Uh, 
I don't have a good digital camera. The the uh, most recent uh, video camera that I have is an analog one, uh, a good old uh, eight millimeter one from uh, oh years gone by. I think it's about ten years old now. So it's time to upgrade. Uh, and I'd like to do that before I do the next uh, video show. So, But again, thanks to everyone who uh, sent in the clips. And also thanks to all the, the well wishes and, and great compliments. Uh, really, really appreciate that. It makes all the efforts worthwhile. Uh, I've got one comment here from uh, Richard uh, in Australia who has some comments about show 150. So let him talk about it a little bit rather than just me. Hello, everyone. This is Richard in Melbourne, Australia. I've just finished watching the Big 150th show, and I was blown away. There is so much talent on this uh, podcast. It's unbelievable. From Rico and its very amusing little intros and side comments about what geeks can and can't do. And yes, they can't dance, or at least I can't either. Um, I just loved it, and I loved the setup of Rico with the big... uh, high-def TV behind him with images from the show. I loved seeing all of the people um, from the forums and the and the podcasts, like the Moyers and their big, cute pets. I love the cats. Um, as a cat lover, I just love that. Um, I, I love seeing the gorgeous Jen and Angela uh, and, and, you know, and, and everyone like Kenny with his massive room of rooms of toys and, and collectibles and stuff. It was just so fantastic to see uh, to see everyone and to and to see the talent with people with their video and their and their editing and their special effects and everything, thank you so much. This really made it for me, and I really enjoy the entire podcast every week. It really helps me when I have to get through another dialysis session. Thank you. Keep up the good work, Rico, and everyone that contributes. I'm not on the forums much, but I do look from time to time and I listen every week heavily to the uh, to the podcast happy 150th rico i hope there are many more to come thank you thanks very much for those compliments richard they're greatly appreciated uh always uh, great to hear from you and uh hope you're doing well in australia i've got to visit that place sometime it just looks amazing like another world uh one of my uh, many places i'd still like to visit uh in the world so again thanks for your uh, comments about show 150 yeah it was uh Really, once I got into doing it, I had a lot of these thoughts of what I wanted to do for the show, just to give you some ideas of how this all came together for, oh, at least months you know, before I did it. I had the idea of doing all these alternate treks in things for a long time. I actually had a list going here on my desk. I had a lot of, or I still have a lot of other ideas for that. I had probably at least a couple of dozen treks in this, treks in that. And when it came down to it, I just tried to limit it and not not overdo it. I, I, you know, I really learned some things about, you know, film and editing and and video in doing a show like that. That I can understand, you know, people who do TV shows and movies. A lot more now, you know. Sometimes less is, is is even better. You don't want to kind of overdo it. Uh, you know, the show was forty five minutes. It was still a fairly big download, and I didn't want to overdo uh, any of the segments and those kind of things. That's why I tried to limit my time for the different parts and also for those who sent in uh, clips. Uh, I think you don't want to over uh, overdo that and make them really long. I think the shorter, short and sweet is good, and I hope uh, it, it worked out. You know, it was really a first effort, kind of raw, sort of, uh, but I think it came together uh, really well, and 
Uh, like I said, I think on the forums when I posted up some comments about it, I could have sat around and tweaked and edited it forever, really. But, you know, it was good to set a deadline and get it out there. And, again, uh, really was a lot of fun, well worth the, the effort, and uh, I just uh, can't wait to do another one. Okay, let's uh, let's shift over to some Trek uh, talk, uh, movie and otherwise. Uh, first thing I want to play, this is a, a little bit older because we did that video podcast last week, but the Duffster had sent in a, a voicemail comment about his experience when he went to see that Menagerie film uh, in the theaters, and I didn't want to miss that uh, since he's such a great contributor to the show and to the forum. With We've got a book club going there now. We're all reading the, the Death Star novel, which has uh, been pretty good so far. I'm into it about... A little more than 100 pages now. But anyway, uh, here's the Duffster and his comments about the menagerie. Hey, Rico, this is Duffster. And this is Missy. And we just got done seeing the menagerie on the big screen. And woohoo! <laughs> <laughs> we had a good time. Uh, hey, Missy, what was your favorite part? When the Salosians turned around and they had buttheads. You know, I must say I've never noticed that before, and it was quite disturbing. Especially since I knew right away when she started laughing what she was laughing at. Uh, and, and what do you think of the way the nice little scenes they had, Kurt staring intently at the women? <laughs> what a horn dog. <laughs> <laughs> and how about when, when Spock noticed that they were the women were the only ones that beamed down? The women! <laughs> so, anyway, we had a great time. I hope you all got to see it, and I hope they do this again some kind. What do you think, Missy? Yes. Yes. So, <laughs> this is Duster. And this is Missy. Say bye-bye, Trex and Sci-Fi. Bye. Well, thanks, uh, Duster and Missy, I think it was. Yeah, thanks for sending in your comments about the menagerie. Yeah, that was... Uh, it was a cool experience. Uh, like I said, uh, when, when I talked about it, you know, once-in-a-lifetime kind of thing. You don't get to see a Star Trek episode, an original series episode, or even any of the other series episodes up on a big screen. And uh, that was a lot of fun. Uh, we really enjoyed it when my son and I went. And it sounds like you guys had a great time, too. Okay, as far as the Star Trek movie uh, that is filming with J.J. Abrams and all of his you know, huge cast of uh, actors right now. Uh, even with this writer's strike going on, they're they're moving forward and getting it. You know, getting the job done. I always wonder. You know, you always hear about movies and TV shows getting last minute script changes and edits. I guess they're not really doing that a lot on this. It's hopefully that script is pretty tight and pretty well written. But anyway, they're filming and a few things. Uh, first, there uh, it appears to be a confirmed. Uh, I guess you can call it a confirmed rumor, or no longer a rumor now, pretty much a fact, that the first teaser trailer, the first little teaser trailer, which probably, uh, keep in mind, will not show a great deal, is uh, supposededly going to show up uh, with uh, J.J. Abrams' movie Cloverfield, which I believe comes out on January 18th. So, you know, about a month and a half away right now. Uh, That is that uh, weird monster movie, it appears to be, that has had uh, trailers showing up online for a long time and uh, and now showing up uh, trailers in the movie theater. So the the trailer for the Star Trek movie is going to uh, be in front of that film, at least. That's what they're saying now. So that would be cool. And I'm sure it will show up online right around the same time. So if you don't go see Cloverfield, although I think I'm going to go see it. It looks pretty good. 
that uh, you'll be able to get to see uh, the trailer anyway, whether you go see that movie or not. It always shows up online within you know minutes or hours uh, of the time it's in the theater. Just a, uh, a one comment about the movie, and I pass them around or pass around, pass along uh, these news tidbits. I'm trying to you know not really give out spoilers on the show. Uh, I don't think this would be a spoiler of any kind. Uh, it's there's just been uh, some talk on the internet about some of the places and locations that they're filming. I'm not going to say a whole lot, but they've been using, I guess, a lot of uh, outside locations. J.J. Abrams for doing the movie. Uh, there are some actually some nods to Star Trek, and he's using sort of some famous locations that have been used before in Star Trek, especially the primarily the original series. Uh, I guess I'll just leave it at that, uh, but those things are going to show up in the film. Uh, they're also uh, at the, uh, I mentioned before, the pretty cool movie, uh, Trek movie news site, trekmovie.com. I just watched it this morning. I'm kind of a little sorry I watched it. I didn't expect quite what I saw. Maybe I should have read the fine print, but they, uh, there's another fan-made trailer up over there, and I guess there's a lot of uh, you know, a lot of rumors and all the talk about the movie plot lines and things. Somebody took uh, some of uh, various Star Trek footage and kind of clipped it together to uh, include some of different, uh, well, let's just say things that they've been talking about that will be end up uh, appearing in the movie they they have in this trailer i i don't think it's a, a severe you know oh gosh now the movie's ruined for me kind of a thing but i just thought i'd mention it if you're curious at all you can hop over there it's on their i think a link off their main page right now or you know just avoid it if you don't want to I, like i said i don't think it's really a big uh spoiler most of it i already knew anyway uh, i've tried to not know the nitty-gritty of every little detail of the movie but being a, a star trek and sci-fi podcast and, and a big fan it's kind of it's a little hard to avoid it all. So, uh, and I, for me at least, Star Trek, since I know it very well and the history of it, there probably, frankly, isn't a whole lot they can do to surprise me in the movie exactly, if you know what I mean. So, not a big deal for me. But I just thought I'd let everyone know about that. And if you're curious, go take a look. Another uh, movie-related uh, comment that uh, was kind of shot down. Uh, there was a rumor floating around that George Takei would, uh, you know, who plays uh, Sulu in the original series, is showing up on Heroes these days, was going to have some small little bit or part in the movie. But I guess that's not true. Uh, it appears, and it's been pretty well documented, of course, that Leonard Nimoy is going to be in the film uh, fairly extensively uh, and has a fairly important part. And from what I'm hearing, that's about it. Of course, Shatner, we've talked about before, in, out, in, out, or whatever. Uh, it doesn't appear like he is going to end up in the movie at all. Uh, which, you know, from, again, what a little bit I know about the film, I don't think it's going to hurt the film any. It would have been kind of nice to see him in there even for a few minutes. But uh, that is okay with me, I guess. Uh, and, I, you know, we'll see. So that's uh, that's it for the movie bit. Uh, I want to uh, take a, a short break, at least for me talking. And Vartok has got another one of these music uh, information segments for us. So sit back and uh, listen to Vartok. He's got uh, there's it's two parts. I'll play the first sort of intro part uh, for that uh, segment uh, first, and then I'll I'll talk a little bit about a few other bits of news, and then I'll play his answer. So here you go with Vartok on some more Trek music information. Hello everyone, this is Vartok again with another music and sci-fi segment. For today's segment, I'm going to talk about the most famous composer in Star Trek musicology. And if you guessed that to be Alexander Courage, or Sandy as he was known professionally, 
then you are right. In this opening segment, I plan to tell you about Alexander's background and just how fantastic and extensive his work has been. Then I will leave you with a rest of the story question for you to ponder until the answer segment later in this podcast. Best known as the composer of the theme from Star Trek, Alexander Courage worked for over 50 years in Hollywood as a composer, arranger, and conductor for classic films such as Some Like It Hot, all the way through The Mummy. He helped create the classic sound of the MGM musical and contributed to the very best of that genre. The Malibu Celebration of Film awarded him their first annual award, named in his honor as the Courage Award, in 2005. Now, Alexander was born in 1919 in Philadelphia, making him about 88 years old today. He was raised in New Jersey and received a bachelor's degree from the Eastman School of Music in Rochester, New York, in 1941. After serving in the United States Army for five years during World War II, he settled into Los Angeles and began work as a composer-arranger for radio. His credits in this medium include Broadway as My Beat, Hollywood Soundstage, and Romance. His credits also include the well-known programs The Camay Hour and Sam Spade. After the war in 1948, he was employed by MGM as an orchestrator. Time out! What is an orchestrator, Vartok? Well, according to a Knoxville Symphony website, an orchestrator is a composer who takes a piece of music and writes parts of that music for each instrument of the orchestra to play. That is an orchestrator. Sandy worked extensively in film music. His credits as a composer-arranger include Funny Face, Guys and Dolls, Showboat, Dr. Doolittle, and Superman. He has also been a frequent Academy Award nominee. Alexander also gained great distinction as a composer-arranger for television and is perhaps best known for his work on the programs Wagon Train, Peyton Place, Daniel Boone, The Waltons, and... and the original Star Trek series. His work at MGM included work in such films as Showboat, Bandwagon, Gigi, and the barn-raising dance from Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. Yeehaw! He frequently served as orchestrator for Andrew Previn in My Fair Lady, Adolf Deutsch in Funny Face and Some Like It Hot, with John Williams in Superman, The Poseidon Adventure, Jurassic Park, and the Academy Award-nominated musical films Tom Sawyer and Fiddler on the Roof, and with Jerry Goldsmith in The Mummy, Mulan, Rudy. Good Lord, I never knew all this about Sandy Courage. Apart from his work as a highly respected orchestrator, Sandy also contributed original dramatic scores to films, including two important 1950s western, The Left-Handed Gun and Day of the Outlaw. He continued writing music for films throughout the 1990s, including the score for Superman IV, The Quest for Peace. In spite of this fantastic list of compositions and orchestrators, Sandy is probably best known for writing the theme music to the original Star Trek television series, but he also worked as a composer in such shows as Lost in Space, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, Judge for the Defense, and Daniel Boone. What did he think about Star Trek's? Hold on, in 1992... Sandy answered that question himself. I have to confess to the world that I am not a science fiction fan. Never have been. It's, you know, I think it's just marvelous malarkey 
<laughs> so you write some, you hope, marvelous malarkey music that goes with it. Well, I did it in a week, composed it, orchestrated it, and conducted it. It was, you know, just another show. When I was a little kid and I used to listen to the radio, there was a song by Richard Whiting called Beyond the Blue Horizon. And it had a long tune. And underneath this tune, they used to have usually an accordion player or something like that. They're going digga 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 digga. So I thought, well, I should have a long thing that goes out into space over a fast-moving continent. I wrote it for a marvelous lady named Lulie Jean Norman, plus a flute, Jack Cookerley's organ, and maybe a vibraphone. And the whole idea was to mix it in so that it would be a what is that that I'm hearing sound, you know. It came off fine till Gene got his hands on it. He wanted to hear the girl more because it was such a sex maniac. And so he had her sort of pushed up a little bit in the mix. And it sounded like a soprano solo after that. After the, the session was over, I went into the booth and we were all sitting around and they were talking about the fact that they had not been able to get the, the proper kind of sound for the spaceship going across the screen of, of the main title. And uh, so I, I said, it won't cost you anything. Give me a microphone and give me the picture. So I went out on the, on the stage <clears throat> and uh, watched the screen. And as it went by, there was the microphone. I just went, <sighs> and that's what they used. <laughs> the show had to open with some kind of something or other. Little did I know when I wrote that first A flat for the flute, you know, that it was going to go down in history somehow. It was a very strange feeling. That clip you just heard is from a professionally produced four-part video segment tribute to Sandy on YouTube. I encourage you to visit YouTube and search for the words Alexander Courage and watch these four segments hosted in part by John Williams. All told, it's only 32 minutes long. You'll be able to see what Alexander looks like and really appreciate his work. And now, the poser for later in this podcast. What is special about the Star Trek theme song from the original series? Stay tuned, and I'll be back with the answer later. Well, thanks again, Vartok, uh, for that uh, cool, in- interesting movie, or uh, excuse me, music uh, music segment uh, about Alexander Courage and the Star Trek music that he worked on and all the other TV and movie music that he did. Uh, I knew he was uh, a fairly prolific uh, orchestrator, composer but i didn't realize it was quite that extensive uh, that's great and uh i'll be playing vartok's uh answer to his segment here shortly uh, a couple other things i wanted to mention uh that we haven't had a chance to talk about yet uh first uh battlestar galactica razor showed about a week ago on the sci-fi channel and i thought it was fantastic i, I really enjoyed it i i liked seeing the old style cylon ships the old style cylon uh, cylons I guess, and and just how they interwove the the past and the present and the Pegasus and all that information you got about uh, a little bit more about Admiral Kane and how much of a you know well nasty uh, commander she was. She 
yelled. I'm not going to give out anything, but she was nasty. For people who haven't seen it yet, uh, I won't spoil it. But I thought the show was uh, was great. Uh, the two hours went by really fast. It's coming out on DVD this week. If you missed it, uh, if you you know you're in a store and you can pick it up in your area, I'd highly encourage you if you're a Battlestar Galactica fan of the new uh, of the new series uh, or even the old one, pick this up. It was it was really well done. Uh, and now it's looking like they're going to start season four, maybe about in March. There's a some trailer and some clips showing up uh, on the Sci-Fi Channel and also online. I, I'm not sure really. The strike has messed things up. Of course, we've talked about this numerous times. They have about, I think the last thing I heard was about eight episodes or ten episodes done, something around there. About half of their uh, season four is done, and the debate, I guess, or the question was whether they were going to show those and then show the rest later whether they're going to hold them completely or what. Uh, I, I guess they're going to show some of these starting in the springtime. I mean, the, the latest word on this strike thing, it, it keeps going back and forth. There was an offer, one offer thrown out there earlier last week. It was rejected. It was kind of a joke, actually, from what I heard about it. And uh, I guess they're going to still talk and, I don't know, maybe get it solved by the, before the end of the year. Who knows? So a lot of things will uh, depend on that and how these uh, TV shows and how the future of those uh, turn out. But uh, we'll keep an eye on that. I do hope it gets resolved, though. It is kind of messing things up for the season for, uh, you know, for people that aren't even really the, the big stars. You know, the people that work on these shows kind of behind the scenes, they're out of jobs and things like that. And that's kind of that's really sad to me, at least. Uh, what else? Uh, the Sci-Fi Channel has this new, uh, it's not really sci-fi, uh, kind of a more fantasy thing, but I'm a big Wizard of Oz fan, so anything Wizard of Oz related I'll always talk about. And they're doing this series, there's a mini-series called Tin Man that is starting tonight, uh, Sunday night, at least on the Sci-Fi Channel here in the States. I believe it's two parts. I think it's uh, Monday and uh, is the second part, and two, you know, of course, tonight is the first two hours, four hours, I think, total. Uh, this looks like a lot of fun. Of course, it's not, you know, the the classic story of Wizard of Oz, but I think it would be hard to just remake that as it was uh, with Judy Garland and, and all. How you know, such a great job they did then. But I'll be watching this Tin Man show, and uh, I think I'll probably be enjoying it uh, for what it's trying to do, at least, uh, and not try to be a copy of what was done before, but something new and unique. Uh, let's see. What else did I want to talk about? Uh, I guess that's about it. Oh, a little aside, I did see that Hitman movie, not really sci-fi or fantasy, uh, based on a video game. But it was kind of enjoyable, uh, a little bit of an escape uh, for a couple hours at the movie theater. So I'm going to take a, uh, a a short break here. And during that break, you will be hearing Vartok on his uh, continuation of his Alexander Courage music segment. I'll be right back. Hi, everyone. This is Vartok again, with the answer to the question posed earlier to what is special about the Star Trek theme song. Well, if you didn't already know, it is that lyrics were written for Courage's Star Trek theme by creator Gene Roddenberry. As everyone knows, one of the most important parts of any successful television show is its theme song. Whether it has lyrics to explain the show's background, like the Beverly Hillbillies, or is a catchy instrumental song like Hawaii Five-0, the song is a beacon to its regular viewers. In the case of Star Trek, the words were created not because Roddenberry ever expected the words to be sung, but because by claiming acknowledgement as the co-writer, he earned half of the royalties from the song. When Desilu Studios produced the Star Trek pilot, they despaired of finding a top-notch composer to score the theme song. In my last music and sci-fi segment, I told you they wanted Jerry Goldsmith. 
Film and TV composers earn most of their salary from residuals paid for repeat performances of their compositions. Well, this means two things. One, no established composer wants to commit his or her time to a show that does not appear to be promising. However, if the series becomes famous, they will receive royalties each time the show appears on TV, even in reruns. Well, the combination of a small Desilu Studios with a rep- reputation for unsuccessful pilots and a serious science fiction show wasn't getting any takers. Well, fortunately for us, Sandy over at 20th Century Fox took on the job and created the memorable Star Trek theme. After the first year of Star Trek's success, Sandy was in an enviable position. Then, Gene Rodberry claimed half of the royalties by laying claim to the providing the lyrics to the theme song. Apparently, Gene had earlier made a handshake deal with Sandy that gave Gene the option to compose lyrics, which he did. It didn't matter that the lyrics were never recorded and used. By the rules, Gene was entitled to half of the royalties. Sandy protested in vain. Although the arrangement was legal, it was certainly unethical, and Gene's lyrics added nothing to the value of the music. In retrospect, some people say this may only be pointing to how constrained financially Gene Rodberry was in producing his vision. And what were these lyrics, comprised of 53 words or so? And now, for the first time in recorded history on Treks and Sci-Fi, Vartok will sing the lyrics to Star Trek. Even Uhura has not done this feat. No, forget that. I'll read them dramatically instead. Beyond the rim of the starlight, my love is wandering in starflight. I know he'll find in star-clustered reaches love, strange love a star woman teaches. I know his journey ends never. His Star Trek will go on forever. But tell him while he sails his starry seas, remember, remember me. And now you know the answer to the question. Let me wrap up this segment with an interesting fact. Alexander Courage donated materials emanating from his professional and personal activities to the Sibley Music Library at the Eastman School of Music where he had studied. These included scores, scripts, sketches, notes, and recordings for film and television productions, arranged scores for pop orchestras and award broadcasts, sheet music, personal papers, and photographs. No restrictions have been placed on access to the materials in this collection. Think about that, Treks and Sci-Fi fans. In Folder 8 of the Courage Collection is the original main title theme to Star Trek. Do you think any one of us can go there and put our eyes on the original annotated score? Oh, and by the way, composer Michael Giacchino, who is said to be composing the music for the next Star Trek movie, indicates that the theme from the original series will be used. Sandy, I hope you will like that. Well, that's it for this music and sci-fi segment. And now back to you, Rico. Well, thanks a lot for that uh, great uh, information bit on Alexander Courage, Vartok. I really appreciate that. Uh, lots of cool information. Yeah, I was, I had, of course, heard those uh, lyrics uh, before uh, that Gene had written for the Star Trek theme. I never really thought that they were all that great. Uh, it's, 
They're, they're pretty hokey, actually. He, he was no songwriter, that's for sure. Anyway, thanks again, Vartok. And now we really, you know, we're way into this show, like a half hour into the podcast. we got to get into our main topic, which is Lost in Space. So uh, let's get started on that. This is Alpha Control. The Robinson family will prepare to board the space vehicle at once. It is now zero minus 33 minutes and counting. Okay, folks, let's get into Lost in Space. Uh, this uh, this show, of course, was the uh, came out slightly before Star Trek premiered. This show lasted for also three seasons, just like the original Trek did. It was on the air from September in 1965 to March of 1968. So you started a year earlier than Trek and ended it a year earlier for three seasons. The Space Family Robinson, uh, this... Uh, yeah, which uh, was actually the original title for this series. It wasn't first called uh, Lost in Space. It was going to be called Space Family Robinson. Uh, sort of a takeoff on the Swiss Family Robinson uh, thing that was done with Disney and that of this sort of uh, castaway family. Instead of being on an island out in the middle of the ocean, they were going to be out in the big vastness of space lost uh, for, um, well, for pretty much the entire series. And uh, this was one of Irwin Allen's television shows. He had done uh, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. That was a big success. Started that one uh, the year before. And then uh, since that was such a success, they created this uh, space uh, drama, family fantasy tale, uh, which at first was a was a very serious action-adventure type show. The first season especially, which was in black and white, was uh, was ve- was very serious and, and a lot of people that I think uh, that don't really know Lost in Space very well always think of it as sort of a kiddie show a little bit but the first season is very cool it's got some uh, really uh, nice action adventure elements like I said they're on this sort of very hostile planet there there's all kinds of things each week of course to uh, you know try to kill them and you know attack their uh, their little family and everything and and that, but uh, but a very good show, especially the first season. I think I really enjoyed uh, that year of it, especially, and I enjoyed all the seasons. Now, for this TV show, Erwin uh, Allen assembled a, a really good cast. I think that's one of the strongest parts of Lost in Space is the actors and the cast that they got. Uh, Guy Williams pr- played uh, Professor John Robinson. Mark Goddard was Don West, their pilot. Uh, Maureen Robinson, uh, his wife, uh, the wife of. Uh, John Robinson was played by June Lockhart, of course, uh, a very famous uh, television actress at the time. Uh, they had uh, a couple of daughters. Uh, Angela Cartwright was Penny. Marta Kristen was, uh, she was uh, Judy. I'm blanking out, sorry, for a second. And, of course, they had uh, Billy Mummy as, uh, is that how you say his name? Mummy? Mummy? I don't know. I could never remember uh, how to say that name. Anyway, he played Will Robinson, and of course they had Jonathan Harris as Dr. Zachary Smith, and one additional cast member in a way, uh, the B-9 robot, uh, you know, Danger, Danger, Will Robinson was added. Now, the interesting thing about Lost in Space that, that some people may know, my, you know, a lot of people might not know, is that the original series, the first actual pilot episode that they made for the show, didn't include uh, Dr. Smith and the robot uh, the the Robinson family was still thrown off course and lost in space, but they didn't have the whole stowaway of Doctor Smith aboard. The robot uh, it was not there either. And uh, this pilot episode, if you buy the first season of Lost in Space on DVD, you can see that original pilot. Uh, it goes through a lot of the same scenes. Uh, they just don't have a robot, don't have Doctor Smith, which is pretty interesting, I thought. And it's uh, 
obviously for more conflict in the show and more interest, I think, for a lot of things to happen, they added those two characters, which, of course, later in the series, especially Dr. Smith and the robot and uh, probably will became uh, probably the three main characters that a lot of things happen to throughout the rest of the series, especially seasons two and three. Now I'm going to play a, uh, a short segment here. This is actually a commercial from the 80s when Lost in Space was first released out on videotape. Uh, this uh, talks about the, the show a little bit, gives you some background, and I thought it was kind of a cool little commercial that I found on YouTube. So I'll play the audio for you uh, right now. People of Earth, prepare to embark upon the most incredible journey ever undertaken by humanity. Ten seconds. Count Nine, down to... Eight. The Seven, future. Six. Five. Four. Look three, to the skies and blast off. Lost in Space, the collector's edition. Soar into the unknown aboard the incredible Jupiter 2 with your first two-episode video cassette only $4.95. Featuring the unaired original pilot and the startling premiere episode. Every galactic minute is packed with non-stop action. Hair-raising thrills, spine-tingling chills, adventures beyond imagination. Earth 1997, boy genius Will Robinson, his family, and their pilot Major West head for a new life in a far-off galaxy, Alpha Centauri. Little do Will and the rest know that a mysterious stowaway will leave them all hopelessly lost in space. This is never-ending adventure across the vast reaches of the galaxy. Disaster threatening at every moment. The suspense, the shock, the lure of the unknown. Lost in Space, the collector's edition. Irwin Allen's legendary vision of tomorrow. Now on video cassette. Two electrifying episodes for only $4.95. <laughs> Your heart will race. Your pulse will pound. Your VCR will explode with excitement. Lost in space. It's out of this world. To get your first two-episode video for only $4.95, have your credit card ready and call toll-free 1-800-441-1313 now. <laughs> Isn't that funny to hear that? Uh, you know, they really uh, schlock it up, I think. You know, that show was, like I said, the first season especially was was a lot more action-adventure, a lot more serious in tone, but that that commercial for the videotapes is, is pretty uh, pretty funny, I think. They they really uh, make it sound like some kind of B-movie, you know, B-monster movie. This, uh, what else did I want to say about the first, uh, first few episodes for your first season? Oh yeah, the uh, well, the, this pilot episode again was was the most expensive pilot ever made at the time, which uh, you know a lot of these shows, these sci-fi shows of the '60s, that uh, they were very expensive to make. the The Jupiter Two, the the robot, you know, the sets for this show uh, were really something to see, and of course they used them throughout the series. But to make them make the pilot episode, all this stuff had to be built from the ground up for the first time. The, the cost could be sort of spread out then if you went to a series, but if you were just going to do the pilot, it cost a lot of money to just get that first episode in the can. So it really was an expensive show, and it looked cool. I mean, they had these cool silvery space suits, and the robot looked neat, and I loved the main deck of the Jupiter 2, and I always loved the, sh- the, the way the Jupiter 2 ship looked. You know, they took that... Uh, 
the classic uh, 50s flying saucer idea and basically made the, their, the ship that the family was aboard uh, look just like a, an alien flying saucer. Kind of took a, took a, a spin or turned that uh, concept on its head, if you know what I mean. You know, all the 50s movies had these aliens showing up on Earth with these flying saucer ships. And when they come to make a TV show about a family going out into space, they put them in a flying saucer, basically. Now, the, the premise here was it was the year 1997, and the Earth was uh, running out of resources and overpopulated. So they shot it about you know 30 years into the future. Of course, we're in 2007, 40 years away now. And, of, well, there's a lot of people here, but uh, we're still managing somehow. But the, uh, the reason the Robinsons were going off was to colonize a nearby star, the closest uh, star to the Earth, actually, Alpha Centauri. They were going to go there and check it out and... And I guess if it was good, they'd say, hey, come on to uh, to over here. And although, hey, you know, moving billions or millions at least of people off the earth would be a very expensive uh, uh, prospect. You know, you'd think you could go out into like the asteroid belt and, you know, mine some resources and bring them back or do something like that. Uh, but, you know, that that's sci-fi. But anyway. So, again, what happens in the first episode is Dr. Smith sabotages the ship he's uh, he's really a real bad guy at the time and he he ends up uh, causing the jupiter 2 to go off course and and drift uh go into sort of this hyperdrive mode almost and it gets far and far out into the vast unknown reaches and lost in space hence the title right so uh i've got uh, another little clip here to uh, this is kind of a little bit of miscellaneous clips from the series so listen to this Mr. President, status control on Jupiter 2. As of this moment, the spacecraft has passed the limits of our galaxy. It's presumed to be hopelessly lost in space. Model B9, designed and computerized as a mechanized electronic aid for Earth voyagers engaged in astral expeditions. What are you? I am a robot of the class M3, programmed to provide information and support to all Jupiter personnel. We are all corrosive resistant and self-oiling. I know my dad told you to watch me, but can't you close your eyes even for a minute? It does not compute. Two steps forward, my mechanical friend. These alien creatures may be very terrifying. You mustn't panic, you know. And don't tremble. I'm not. You are. Warning. Alien approaching. Warning. Biophysical experiments extremely dangerous to Earth people. Warning, warning, we're about to enter the orbit of an unidentified planet. Warning, warning, extraterrestrial life form approaching. Well, well, there. As you can hear from that uh, set of clips there, of course, uh, you know, Dr. Smith, the robot, and Will uh, figured prominently in a lot of the episodes, uh, which was kind of a disappointment. You know, Guy Williams was a a 
fairly well-known actor. He played Zorro, a very physical guy, uh, and and did the action-adventure stuff in season one especially very well. Mark Goddard was also uh, a great uh, actor on this show. I actually met him, uh, got a picture with him one time at a convention along with uh, Angela Cartwright, and I've seen June Lockhart as well. Uh, these these uh, actors, um, Guy Williams passed away uh, a few years back, and so did Jonathan Harris, but all the rest of them are alive and well and uh, do the conventions uh, pretty regularly. So you're, you know, it's kind of nice to see them and uh, see them still out there and, and talking about Lost in Space and everything. One thing I always really enjoyed about Lost in Space was the music, and, and it, it makes sense that uh, if you notice the composer uh, listed in the credits for Lost in Space has uh, been usually listed as Johnny Williams, and yes, that is none other than John Williams, the uh, great composer that did the Star Wars movies and and just tons of other movie music over the years. He did the theme songs for Lost in Space, a lot of the music uh, for the show he composed, uh, and it, it's it really is is you know just adventurous and exciting music. Uh, I've talked uh, a few times before. We had uh, Vartok talk about music on this podcast. Uh, you know, music for me for movies and television shows has always been very, very important to to set the mood and and really gives you a, a good feel for the show and, and what the show is all about. Uh, I want to play a little bit of music here uh, from one, a different composer, actually. This is from Bernard Herrmann, who did a lot of uh, sci-fi and fantasy-type films around this time. He also contributed music to the uh, Lost in Space TV show. This particular segment was used during uh, some of the scenes where John Robinson would fly around in that little jet pack. If you're familiar with the show, he had this jet pack that he could uh, put on and, you know, go out searching for, you know, lost members of the family, which seemed to happen a lot. So listen to this bit of music. I, I like it a lot. interesting uh things about lost in space is as compared to star trek which there have been a lot of comparisons between those two over the years is that lost in space actually was a fairly modest uh, hit for cbs the network that was airing it uh it it usually ended up about uh you know 30 in the 30 place uh, of the you know not the top 10 but in about place 30 of all the tv shows star trek never got really as high in the ratings as lost in space did the ratings did dwindle a little bit uh, in the later seasons for Lost in Space, and part of that was uh, probably due to uh, the TV show, the the 1960s TV show Batman for ABC. The year after Lost in Space uh, started, uh, the second year it was on the air, Batman went up against it on the same time on Wednesday nights, and this is probably one of the reasons why Lost in Space changed the, the sort of format for the show and went for more uh, comedic uh, elements and not so much action adventure. They tried to sort of simulate or emulate, I guess, whichever way you want to call it. Uh, uh, the 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 excuse. Blah, blah. <laughs> we'll leave that in. I know you guys like it when I flub things up. They tried to they tried to 
kind of simulate a little bit of what Batman had going, where there was sort of a drama going on, but there was a lot of comedy involved in it. And that's when the robot and Dr. Smith and Will would go off and get into trouble and then have to get you know saved somehow by the uh, the rest of the family or themselves, even uh, each episode. Uh, so they went up against Batman and... This, uh, because of budget cutbacks and things like that, it actually was still doing pretty good in the ratings after season three, unlike Trek, which had been thrown onto Friday nights uh, and, and had really died in the ratings after season three and was uh, you know ultimately canceled by the network. This uh, show wasn't really effectively, Lost in Space wasn't canceled. It was, Erwin uh, Allen was given the, the, uh, the notice by CBS that said, well, you can come back for a fourth season but we're cutting your budget by, like, I don't know, 15% or something like that it was going to be. And he said, no, I, I can't do this show. I can't do a sci-fi show for for that kind of money. So he he ended the show basically on his own terms. He decided he didn't want to come back and give him kind of a half-baked uh, uh, Lost in Space show. So he decided to quit, and, and, and or I don't know, really quit, but he ended the show at that point. Uh, which was uh, kind of sad to the cast. I mean, they th- some of the principal members since the other uh, since the robot and Doctor Smith and everyone had become so much in the forefront of the show had become kind of disillusioned with the rest of uh, Lost in Space. Especially uh, June Lockhart and Guy Williams were not very happy with the direction of the show. I do want to play one little clip here from another episode, though. This is from an episode from the third season, one of the better ones from later in the series, called The Antimatter Man, which was sort of a mirror universe tale of uh, an alternate universe where the the characters were there, but they were sort of their evil twins and evil counterparts. And this little exchange here in this episode is between, uh, basically between uh, Professor Robinson, the father figure, and his son Will. So listen to this. Oh, it's the, uh, I'm sorry, the... It's the evil duplicate uh, John Robinson talking here that's got Will. So listen to this clip. On the contrary, there's no one to stop me. Oh, no. I'm afraid you're not quite up to it yet. In a few years, perhaps. But not now or in the near future. You sound like you're planning to be around for quite a while. That's exactly what I'm planning. So you'd better get used to seeing me around. After all, I am a member of the family. My real father's not going to let you do this. He'll come after us. I just bet he will. He'd better not. That would be a disaster. I just know he's going to come after us. If you love your father as much as you say you do, pray that he doesn't. Yeah, that was a uh, that was a very good episode that they did uh, for the third season, the Antimatter Man. I really like that one. Uh, one of the things that uh, always especially uh, hit home with me, at least, was the relationship between uh, the father John Robinson and his son Will. Uh, one of the reasons for that was uh, this is kind of an odd thing, I guess, but uh, Guy Williams, uh, who played John Robinson on the show, really looked uh, a lot like my real father uh, did. Uh, who actually he passed away. My father passed away when I was about ten years old, and I and I think part of me when I was growing up watching Lost in Space sort of uh, looked to John Robinson sort of as a you know kind of you know a little bit of a surrogate father to a degree you know kind of interesting. But the, their faces especially it was really uh, amazing when I first 
saw Lost in Space, I said, geez, that guy looks like my dad. I was, like, shocked at the time. But anyway, I just thought I'd pass along that little bit of, uh, or tidbit, I guess. Anyway, um, but Lost in Space, a very cool show from the 60s. I, I, I'm really kind of running out of time. There's a ton I could talk about, uh, and I do have a few other Lost in Space-related topics uh, beyond the series to talk about. You know, they did a movie in that, and I want to talk about those here for a few minutes. But first, I'm going to play. I've got a couple of uh, audio clips from listeners that I want to play and get into the show about Lost in Space. This is from Amar. He is... Uh, also known as James, and he is also on the forums. He has some comments about why he likes Lost in Space. So listen in. Hello, Rico. This is Amar from the forums, and I'm glad to see you're doing a show on Lost in Space. This was really the first science fiction show that I watched that I can remember uh, back when it came out in 66. I actually was watching it before I started watching Star Trek. Uh, I didn't start watching Star Trek till the second season. But I've always liked the show. Uh, maybe it's it's a guilty pleasure to uh, like a show that is... If you go back... When you go back and watch it now, which I've, I've downloaded the shows from iTunes, it's... You know, it, it looks so... So funny and and ridiculous but i can remember you know just being glued to the tv and 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 watching it you know and when they do their little cliff cliffhanger endings for each episode with a little preview of the next one it was like oh i can't wait till next week to to see the next one um it was just i liked the show it was it was funny. Um, it was it was just different. It was it was something other than cartoons or you know the other stuff you you had on TV at the time. And uh, you know I didn't know till later that that John Williams had actually wrote the 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 soundtrack for it, the theme songs. Um, at one time, I did have a copy of original sheet music but I've lost it but uh, it was it was just a really interesting and, and fun show to watch um, there's there's so much you could <laughs> I don't know where to start it's just the the characters were were quite quite good they didn't do a lot with you know delving into a lot of background except for possibly Dr. Smith being the quote bad guy um, and uh, anyway I just want to uh, let you know that uh, I really like the show I'm glad you're doing a deal on it and I uh, will be awaiting with anticipation to hear what you have to say about it have a good day bye well, thanks for your comments, James, about Lost in Space. Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely a favorite of mine. I've got them all on DVD, and it's uh, always fun to pull one out and, and watch it again. Like I said earlier, Season 1, I think, is great. Uh, the later season still has some fun episodes. Of course, one of the last episodes, I think it was the last episode of Lost in Space, has sort of become infamous over the years. Is a, It's called the Great Vegetable Rebellion, where um, these 
talking carrot guy shows up, turns Dr. Smith into a stalk of salary. If you've never seen the Great Vegetable Re- Rebellion episode of Lost in Space, that is probably the, the, the funniest uh, sci-fi television episode maybe ever made. Uh, it was totally a joke, uh, and I, I, don't, I don't even really know what to say about it, except that uh, I think the cast was really, uh, frankly, uh, seriously embarrassed in even doing that episode, but that's that's where it had become or where it had gotten at the end of season three. You know, it's hard to say what would have happened in season four. Would they have gone back to more of a action-adventure format, or would they have stuck with that uh, kind of jokey comedy elements? Who knows? Uh, and, yes, did uh, you know, as James said in his clip, I, I did love how they would end these episodes with sort of a cliffhanger a lot of times prior to uh, the next episode. They did that uh, a lot in the early seasons and it kind of faded away. They didn't do it as much uh, later on. And again, James also mentioned the music uh, by John Williams. Uh, really great. Uh, the, the Especially the Season 3 theme song, which James played a little at the end of his segment there. You heard it in the background. I was going to play the whole thing, but really running out of time here. This uh, that, that was some great uh, theme music. I, I'm a big fan of, of television movie music uh, and television themes especially and i loved uh, the season three opening music for lost in space so uh i I gotta really wrap this up a couple of other tidbits you might not know about uh, lost in space they actually were going to do a an animated lost in space tv show in the 70s around about the same time the star trek animated uh tv show was on they did create one uh one episode for it a pilot and you can see the little bits of that on youtube i have a clip but i'm not going to really have time to play it they changed things a lot for some reason for the uh, the animated series. I think they couldn't get a lot of the actors back on the show. They did get Zachary Harris, who did a lot of Saturday morning television around that time. They got, did get his voice, uh, but that may be about it. I think they got the same voice for the robot. Bob May, I believe, is his name, who did the voice. But anyway, that, uh, that was on. There was also, of course, the 1998 Lost in Space movie, where they basically recast the sh- the, the characters. Same kind of story to a degree. Uh, it was uh, it was a good movie, I thought. Uh, a lot of people really hated it. Really didn't like it a lot. I mean, they there's there's some real Lost in Space movie haters out there for some reason. I enjoyed it for what it was. They had a lot of cameos. They gave a lot of the actors who were in the original series cameos. Uh, June Lockhart, Angela Cartwright, uh, Marta Cristo was in there. Uh, Mark Goddard got to play a pretty good part. Uh, he was the uh, sort of military uh, commander over the new Don West, played by, uh, uh, what's, what's his name, uh, Matt LeBlanc from Friends was the new Don West in the movie. Uh, had some very cool music. I'm going to try to play a little bit of the music uh, from the movie at the end of this. They did this uh, kind of rock take on the theme song to Lost in Space. I'll play that at the end of this week's show. So, uh, a good movie, 1998. If you're a Lost in Space fan and you've been put off by by seeing that due to what you've heard, you know, check it out. Give it a try. Uh, there was also, which is something I found in looking around and doing a little research for this week's show, there was also a uh, a second TV series that was started roughly. I guess there was maybe one episode done in around 2003. It was actually re- the direction, or the, it was directed by uh, John Wu, a famous action director, uh, worked on the show. Uh, it was a, a new cast, of course. I don't know a lot more about it. Maybe somebody listening to this podcast will and can email an audio comment in, uh, treksf at gmail.com. 
uh, you know, send it in. Uh, but that's about all I could find out on that. Uh, so there was this, oh, the other little tidbit from that is that I guess they used some of the sets that they created for that second TV series for Lost in Space for the new Battlestar Galactica series, primarily for the, the sets uh, aboard the Pegasus Battlestar. So that's really interesting. Yeah. There's your little connection to... Uh, a trivia question, what's the connection between Lost in Space and, and the new Battlestar Galactica? Well, they use some sets from the this proposed second series for Lost in Space on the new Battlestar Galactica. Pretty interesting stuff. So, And uh, I guess that's about it. If you're a Lost in Space fan, I hope you found this interesting. I, uh, I really uh, enjoyed the show over the years. Like I said, uh, I pull it out now and then and give it a, give it a go again. And it's always still fun to watch. Uh, I do have one other fairly long audio uh, comment about Lost in Space by Jedi Jeff on the forums. But I think I'm going to save that and tag it on the end of the show uh, for you to listen to. It's about seven minutes long. And uh, we'll play that then. I, I'm going to talk uh, real briefly about uh, one collectible Lost in Space related uh, in just a moment after I take a very quick break. Your sensors have detected the USS Trexan sci-fi with Captain Rico at the helm. This is Angela and Jen, ready for transport, Captain. Okay, I'm back. I've got uh, one collectible Lost in Space related to talk about. There have been a lot of toys and collectibles for Lost in Space over the years. I don't have a a lot of them. I have a little uh, kind of uh, remote-controlled robot uh as one item, but that's not really what I wanted. The one I wanted to talk about. I've got a, a nice little robot piece that was done by the Franklin Mint. Uh, let me see. It's got a uh, a date on the bottom of this piece. I can probably tell you when I uh, when it was first made. Uh, let's see. I've got uh, let's see. Classic series robot B nine limited edition uh, number three forty five from uh, nineteen ninety eight. So this was put out around the time of the movie which makes sense. So this was done by the Franklin Mint. It's basically a, a small version of the robot uh, from Lost in Space on a neat little base that's sort of the shape of the Jupiter II. And he sits uh, amongst some sort of alien rocks. The The robot itself is probably about five inches high. Not real big, but fairly detailed and pretty nice looking. The, the probably coolest feature about this, and there'll be some pictures up that I'll link to in the podcast notes if you want to take a look at this in the gallery uh, on the uh, treksinsci-fi.com website. The the coolest thing about this little uh, replica piece here, though, from the Franklin Mint, is that he actually has an audio chip in here and plays uh, uh, has some uh, uh, vocal stuff that he does from the TV series. Well, let me just play it for you. It'll probably work out better that way, and you'll understand what I'm talking about. So listen, I'll push the button here. Alpha Control. Come in, Alpha Control. This is the robot. We appear to be lost in space. Please help. Danger, Will Robinson. Danger. Sensors indicate an alien intruder. Warning, warning. So there you go. It's uh, it's pretty neat. He, uh, he has a little red LED light on his chest there, the robot, and, and it blinks, you know, as he talks. And uh, it's a nice little item. Uh, they didn't, I don't think, make a lot of these. I, I, I'm sure you could probably still find them occasionally on eBay. Uh, but uh, that's the replica Lost in Space related for um, for this week's show all about uh, Lost in Space. Okay, folks, I am going to now play uh, for you uh, Jedi Jeff, uh, his comments about Lost in Space. And uh, I will come back at the very end of it and, and just sort of sign off for this week's show. So here's a, a fairly long segment. Jeff has some comments about uh, the TV show that we've been talking about. 
Hi Rico, this is Jeff, Jedi Jeff on the forums, and I'd like to uh, give you my thoughts on your topic for this week's podcast, Lost in Space, the television series. This was a show that I probably started watching probably in my uh, kind of mid to late 20s, so probably uh, probably 10 years ago, 10, 11, 12 years ago. Um, mostly the, the channel up here in Canada, our sci-fi channel, uh, started showing the episodes uh, daily and... Uh, Probably more so as a kind of a promotion for that Lost in Space movie that was uh, coming out. Like uh, I think it was like a year or two after they started showing the Lost in Space episodes. And um, I was always kind of interested in seeing the series. Um, like I said, I'd always heard that it was kind of a campy type kind of sci-fi show and uh, things like that. And, uh, but I still was kind of interested in seeing it. So when they started showing it, I, I made sure to uh, record it each day because they usually showed it during the day while I was at work, so I'd usually watch it in the evening when I got home. And uh, like I say, I, I was, for the most part, uh, I, I enjoyed it. Um, like I say, I think I'm probably like most people where like, the first season was probably far the most strongest, and then season two and season three were not as good and a lot more campy, and uh, the stories just weren't as uh, science fiction orientated, like um, they're more so in the uh, first season. Uh, I enjoyed the characters actually quite a bit as well. Um, like say, um, they all, I thought were all pretty good characters. I know kind of in the season two and season three that the um, majority of the cast kind of got forgotten for Will and Dr. Smith because most of the episodes were focused around them. But I um, always, always liked the Robinson family and I like Major West. Always, I really actually like Major West. He's probably one of my more favorite characters on the show and I really wish they would have maybe explored more episodes with him and Dr. Smith because I, I always enjoyed that kind of conflict and um, even like say the conflict between uh, John Robinson and uh, Dr. Smith I also really liked um, as well you know they, you could tell that they didn't really care for Dr. Smith um, kind of what I've read in the past it sounds like that might have been maybe actually even some kind of true feelings for the actors themselves because they kind of got pushed kind of out of the series a bit into more supporting roles from uh, leading roles at the start. Um, but anyways, I thought they were, they were all really great characters. Actually, as well, too, I actually really liked the, um, the Penny character. Um, I felt she, um, the episodes that they focused on her, um, I thought were at times probably some of the more stronger episodes of the series. And I found that she had a really good kind of moral compass to her, kind of similar to Will Robinson, but uh, from a female perspective. And um, always kind of, uh, I felt too that, you know, the series might have been a bit more stronger if they made, would have had some more Penny episodes as well too, um, because I, I thought that was a good solid character. And then also too, I really enjoyed the kind of the comedic aspects of Dr. Smith and the B-9 robot and uh, always like those kind of little banters back and forth with the robot and Dr. Smith and how, you know, at times they're good friends and other times he's telling them to shut up and shut his mouth and things like that really enjoyed that um like i say the uh the seasons you know like season one probably for me was was the best season um the first half of it actually um i really can't pick an episode out of that which i thought was better than the rest they were all pretty solid and uh you know a good kind of science fiction uh kind of basis on them too for some of them um like say some of the episodes from season one that i kind of enjoyed were ones like invaders from the fifth dimension that two-parter the Keeper I thought was really cool, you know, with the guy with all the different creatures from all around the galaxy and then how he wanted to take Penny and Will 
Also, I like the uh, War of the Robots. You know, kind of seeing uh, Robbie the Robot uh, in an episode of Lost in Space was cool. And also Wish Upon a Star, which is kind of a typical Dr. Smith kind of episode where he, he finds something and then he kind of abuses it and, uh, you know, it turns out not to be as great as he thought it was going to be. Season 2 and Season 3, like I kind of indicated, uh, you know, they weren't really kind of my favorite type of episodes. Uh, more campy and, and harder to find the better episodes, but they still did have a few good episodes in them like that kind of like the episode prisoners of space where dr smith was on trial or, or the episode the golden man i, I felt had a pretty good uh, kind of moral behind that you know where you had a, a good looking golden man and he was in a war against an ugly looking frog type person really really campy looking effects but uh, you know the moral of that you know where sometimes people side with the better looking people i, I felt was it was a nice moral for that story also, I really enjoyed the, the episode The Toymaker, which is kind of a campy episode, I guess I should say. But, um, you know, for some reason I kind of enjoyed it, and uh, that was one that I, I kind of liked. As for Season 3, again, there is a lot of campy ones, you know, like when you have big giant vegetables, you know, in episodes. You, you know, it's, it's kind of uh, getting far away from the science fiction element. Uh, but. A few of them, like a visit to a hostile planet where they kind of go back in time to planet Earth. I thought that was a good episode. And also the Antimatter Man, which kind of got to focus on John Robinson a little bit, which I also kind of enjoyed. Um, I, I'll kind of end my kind of my thoughts here on Lost in Space on kind of a collectible that actually uh, I picked up. Uh, well, it's probably been about 10 years, 10 years now. Um, it's actually... Um, I found this in Toys R Us one day, uh, back back in my days when I was doing lots of uh, Star Wars uh, figure hunting, and it was a classic series B9 robot. Um, looks like he's about 12 inches uh, high, about 12 to 14 inches high, somewhere, somewhere. Well, maybe not that. Maybe about 10 inches high, and he's kind of he's it's uh, kind of electronic here. You know, he lights up, and um, you know he can make some kind of sounds and uh, roll back and forth and I guess his arms will move in and out and it's kind of a really neat uh, kind of little collectible here um, except I've never really taken it out of the box so I've never really uh, tested it to its uh, full, full use but it's kind of one of these uh, motion uh, sensing uh, toys as well so if you walk close to it it'll, uh, it'll yell out things like Danger Will Robinson or, or other kind of classic kind of quotes from Robot B9 and it's kind of a cool little toy here like say I've never really ever seen it it comes from a company called Trendmasters I'm not sure it looks like it's imported from China and uh, like say I'd seen it at Toys R Us one day and bought it and like say really that was the only time I've ever really seen like kind of classic Lost in Space uh, collectibles ever in the store. Like say at the time, uh, I think when I bought it, they were probably selling collectibles for or toys for like the, the Lost in Space movie that they had come out with. So this was kind of a cool kind of item to have. Uh, like say I'm always kind of happy to have it. Um, like say I've never really seen it before. Anyways, uh, thank you for uh, letting me give you some of my thoughts on Lost in Space, Rico. And back to your show. Well, thanks uh, very much, Jeff, again, as always, for your thoughts about Lost in Space. Uh, yeah, lots of cool stuff. I have a couple of those Trendmaster items, too, the robot. They even did a Jupiter 2 as well. Uh, really cool toys. Uh, 
like you said, around the time of that movie in 1998, there was kind of a resurgence. There's also some new toys, new action figures that are being put out uh, these days. Uh, I think they're about 10, 12 inch high uh, of the uh, different characters from Lost in Space. You know, check out some online stores. You'll be able to find them or eBay. Uh, they've done some of those so far. I can't remember the, the name of the company that's doing those right off the top of my head right now, but... Yeah, and that third season episode you mentioned, Visit to a Hostile Planet. Yeah, that's a great episode. They end up back on Earth, but Earth in about the 19, I think it's 1940s or 1950s. Uh, and, of course, at that time, the cool thing is they land their little flying saucer in this small town, and they appear to be aliens. And like I was saying earlier, their ship looks like a flying saucer, and it kind of sets the stage for uh, you know the flying saucer paranoia of that uh, era. So that was kind of a unique little twist on things. That uh, you know, it's a fun show, Lost in Space. Check it out uh, if you've never had a chance to see it. You definitely want to take a look uh, and um, just uh, you know rent a couple episodes, rent them off of Netflix or whatever. Okay, we really got to wrap this up, folks. Uh, Ran fairly long this week, uh, but a lot to cover. I hope you enjoyed uh, this slightly different uh, Treks in Sci-Fi and talking about Lost in Space and some other things earlier in the show. I want to thank everyone that contributed to this week's show. I really appreciate those, as always. And you can always send in your own comments. TrekSF at gmail.com is the official email for the show. Or you can call the voicemail line 6666 one two seven and leave me a comment there oh i'm sorry the area code for that is 206 so you can leave a voicemail that way or email an audio comment uh, to the email address and also go over and check out the site treksinsci-fi.com check out the forums i'm still working on that collectible gallery oh god it's taking forever to me (laughs) i just don't seem to have time to do all this stuff but anyway check out the site and the forums when you get a chance we've got a the RPG game is really going strong right now for Season 4. That's definitely something you want to take a look at if you're interested in doing some creative fiction writing. So next week we will be back uh, normal day and time with a, uh, a return to Star Trek. We'll be covering an episode. I think it's going to be uh, Voyager Deep Space Nine. I'm not sure. I have to look at my schedule and, and figure out which one's up on, on deck here and ready to go. So uh, until next time, everyone, have a great week. Uh, get out there. Get your Christmas shopping done. I, I, I should start, really, you know. <laughs> Stop podcasting. Go out and do some Christmas shopping. See the world. So uh, anyway, this is Rico signing off for this week. Everyone, take care. I'll talk to you again soon. Bye-bye for now.
podcast under the Creative Commons License 2.5. Share it with your friends. Come on back next week. The Robinsons are all tucked in. We are ready to fly. Space out there to get lost.